Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowake. On this episode, we welcome one of the foremost Democratic campaign strategists in the United States with an impressive resume of winning elections. I met Scott Fairchild in 2010 when he arrived in Chicago to run the successful mayoral campaign of Rahm Emanuel. In addition, Scott has served as the chief of staff in U.S. Congress and successfully ran the U.S. Senate campaign for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee chairwoman, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, later to serve as her chief of staff. In addition, Scott served as the National Campaigns Director for the League of Conservation Voters and currently serves as the Executive Director for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Welcome to Breaking Protocol, Scott Fairchild. Hey, thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Well, we really appreciate you being here. And I always like to get into a little history with my guests before we before we jump into the the true subject matter uh, of what you're here for, and that is campaign strategy. But let's go back a little bit. Was politics and the political arena something that you were always inspired to be a part of, or was there something in particular that generated that motivation for you? Yeah, yeah, it sort of happened into it by accident. A friend of a friend started running for a school board. And so I started helping her out with it and then suddenly realized how exciting and interesting campaigns uh, are, but also I think what a difference campaigns can make, you know, electing, electing good people to public office is uh, in- incredibly valuable. So I, I happened into it a few years back. And how many campaigns would you say over the years that you have successfully ran? Probably something like t- 12 and four, something like that. It's a pretty good record. Not bad. I'm sure any sports team would like to have that record. That's for sure. You know, Let's talk a little bit about politics itself. Are you comfortable with the current direction that uh, partisan politics has taken in the United States, specifically as it relates to the U.S. Senate and what we have most recently seen happen in the U.S. Senate? Or is there any opportunity we're going to see any kind of return to civility moving forward? Yeah, I think the the breakdown in... um bipartisanship look and historically these things come in come in waves but in 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 modern history the last um the last couple decades in the 80s 90s the early 2000s while we certainly had lots of partisan disagreements you could you could still get a lot done in a bipartisan way that got really tested under under george bush and the iraq war and then it 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 devolved further under President Obama, there was record use of the filibuster against his judges, uh, his nominees. The filibuster was used more against President Obama than all previous presidents uh, up to that point. And then, of course, things got even worse under President Trump. So, uh, yeah, things are it's getting harder and harder to get important work done for the country in a, in a bipartisan way to the to your second question. We have to keep trying. I totally agree with President Biden, the Biden administration, that even though people scoff at it, we have to keep trying. There's, um, and I, I think they're doing it right. I think things like budget reconciliation, which has been used by both parties over the years, 
including recently by the Republicans to pass their tax bill just two years ago. We should use budget reconciliation to aggressively get pandemic and economic relief out the door. But then we but then we also have to keep trying on things like immigration reform, criminal justice reform. We have to try and um, achieve bipartisan results. I think we have to try and do both. But it's 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 getting harder. No question. Yeah. You, you brought up filibuster and I'm not sure the general population really understands what that means. You know, when I talk to folks on the street, when you use the word filibuster, they automatically have this visceral reaction that it's something really horrible, uh, that it's a bad thing. And I, I think that's a lack of understanding on, a, on, on many levels. But would you just take a second here and explain what the filibuster is and if used appropriately, why it's good or maybe it's not good for Senate rules? Yeah, sure. So the, I think the, the, the filibuster is, um, you know, it's probably similar to, um, to like alcohol consumption, you know, a little bit of a filibuster could be in moderation, could be used responsibly. Um, there were times in our history. Now the filibuster really only goes back to, to world war one. It's, it's not in the constitution. It's a practice that evolved at the turn of the last century, but it, it, when it, when used in in moderation, it's a way to force both sides to come together and achieve bipartisan results. But like alcohol abuse, you know, there's been filibuster abuse. The filibuster was a key tool of the segregationists holding back civil rights legislation in the 1950s and 60s. Then its use fell down again, and then it spiked again, like I mentioned earlier, under President Obama with the record use of it. Um, against his his judges, uh, against his administration. So, yeah, I do think it's something that can be used responsibly, and it's something that can and has been used recklessly, uh, dangerously, both against the civil rights movement and then later against President Obama. So, simplistically put, it's a tool in the Senate that we can say effectively used for a negotiation tool. If it's used actually in that way, yeah, I think I think look the 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 Senate is supposed to be the cooling saucer of democracy. That the House of Representatives will pass a measure often often on a narrow partisan result, and the idea behind it in practice or or in uh, uh, in an ideal situation, not in practice, would be for cooler heads, the cooling saucer of the Senate to to come together, get to sixty votes on legislation that's moderate, that's bipartisan. That's the that's the way it's supposed to be used. But I think in, in practice, it's clearly broken down. Well, speaking of the Senate itself, we have the next election cycle, you know, right around the corner, 2022. And in 2022, there will be 34 U.S. senators coming up for re-election. 14 of those are Democrats in running what the political pundits, I would say, call safe districts. 20 of those are Republicans. And two of those seats in the Republican side of the Senate, I would say political pundits would describe as an opportunity for Democrats, giving them a chance to take even a firmer control of the Senate. How do you see 2022 playing out? Understanding Obviously, you're not in a position to reveal your strategies. I get that. But do you have any concerns about 22, 
2022 and the Senate elections? Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 Senate map in in 2022 will be um, uh, a lot of defense, uh, a lot less offense. There, both um, Senator Kelly and Senator Warnock have to run again for their full term in in 2022. And those will be hard fought races. Although I think both Senator Kelly and Senator Warnock are are proven winners with with great operations. Senator Hassan uh, and my boss, Senator Cortez Masto both won hard victories in 2016. They both have to run again. Um, and then Senator Bennett, in Colorado. So those five candidates, but here's the good news with all five of them. They're, you know, they're, they're proven vote getters. They're people who've won before. They're all in states that President Biden won, that Biden-Harris ticket won, albeit narrowly in, in, in most of these cases. But that, that gives us some um, that gives us some good ground to stand on, but those are those are going to be um, tough races. And then there there are pickup opportunities for us with uh, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, North Carolina. But you'll and you also you're also seeing a, a wave of Republican entire retirements. You know it's February, and four Republican senators have already announced their retirement at the end of this Congress. So I think with with Burr, Toomey, Portman, uh, and Shelby's retirements. I think that signals that a lot of Republicans are headed for the exits. Well, speaking of Senator Burr, I mean, it's already being reported that Laura Trump is going to run for that seat in North Carolina. Is that something that the DSCC expected to happen? Or is the Republican Party being blindsided by this? I think for for my tenure at the DSCC, I mean, we were focused, you know, more on the the 2020 and then on the eight week Georgia runoff. Um, so I, we haven't, you know, dug into a lot of the 2022 map yet. But the I think you're going to see a lot of a lot of primaries between Trump loyalists and sort of more traditional Republicans, more traditional conservatives. You're going to see that dynamic play out again and again. I think I think you're right. North Carolina may be maybe one of those places. So currently, Scott, the U.S. is facing high unemployment rates, huge income inequality, rising health care costs and an educational related debt like we've never seen in our lifetimes. Of these four initiatives, are there any specifically that can be resolved on a bipartisan platform? And if not, are these initiatives worthy of voter concern in 2022? Yeah, so I think a lot of the income inequality can and should be addressed through the tax code. That process, I think, will be more through budget reconciliation, a more partisan process than than trying to get to 60 and break a filibuster. But the Republican tax bill from two years ago was $2 trillion, all on the national credit card, no paid for to speak of. Did it address income inequality? Yes, it made it far worse. So I think we can and should work through the tax code to get working class, middle class people meaningful tax relief. So I think income inequality can be addressed through budget reconciliation. But there are other things like criminal justice reform, a lot of things with um, healthcare outcomes 
can and should be addressed in a bipartisan way. The differences are more sort of state or regional than they are partisan. Everybody wants better healthcare outcomes. I think there's a lot we can do with Medicare, Medicaid, urban and rural hospital funding that can and should be done on a bipartisan basis. Is there any opportunity that we're going to see a more effective uh, national platform as it relates to the COVID vaccination initiative? Or is this something that at this point, due to lack of a, a federal initiative, will just remain at the state level until this thoroughly plays out? Well, I think the Biden administration has done a done a good job working with with both private industry, but also with states and hospitals, tribal governments to really ramp up um, both vaccine production, but just as important at this point is vaccine distribution. We, we obviously all want the vaccine rollout to be as fast and smooth as possible, but I think it's worth it's it's worth remembering that this has been an incredibly fast rollout. RNA vaccines, um, the the vaccines getting the, the the disease getting coded to the genome, and the RNA, RNA vaccines be getting rolled out at this speed is really encouraging. And I think the admin, the Biden administration has done a good job building up the distribution. I think you're going to start to see in March and April a real spike in vaccinations available. You know, obviously we all want it to be to be sooner. You know, my, my parents are in their seventies and they still haven't been vaccinated up in, in New York. I mean, we all, we all want it done as soon as possible, but I think, I think they're doing a good job getting it out as quickly as possible. So all of that began obviously under the Trump administration and, you know, I don't want to give him a whole lot of airtime. Hopefully the day will come in the near future where we won't be referring to Donald Trump at all, except for some type of historical context but currently and clearly, and most recently, he continues to make the headlines. Now, I doubt it's a surprise to anyone that he was not convicted by the U.S. Senate, which means he is eligible to run for office again and most likely will involve himself in the 2022 Senate races. How will the impeachment trial impact the 2022 campaign strategies? Or do you think by that time, voters will be willing to just say, eh, let bygones be bygones. No, I think, I think. Look, I, I think it was clear to to all that he was not going to get get convicted. Two thirds of the Senate wasn't going to convict him. But this was the largest, most bipartisan vote to convict in U.S. history. Fifty-seven with seven Republicans is a is actually a high water mark. The the courage of. Um, Lisa Murkowski and, and others should be should be commended. So I, I do think that will that will matter to a lot of people in the middle. But um, you know, look, I I think he, you know he's going to be a dominant force in the Republican Party in 2022, um, and he's going to be a big force in, in 2024. And all we can do, all Democrats. And honest Republicans who care about their country can do is keep standing up to him and repudiating him. And I, I do believe that represents the vast majority of Americans. And it's why Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris won by by uh, as as many votes as they did, both in the popular and the electoral vote college. And I think I think Americans will repudiate him. I think, you know, 
I think so, someone like him, once they leave office, he'll, he will fade. He will fade into the dustbin of history. So you previously mentioned that you feel there will be a significant amount of primaries between traditional Republicans and Trump Republicans coming up in 2022. Do you think the traditional Republican will run on a platform that is anti-Trump? Or do you think that they will, in some level, try to bring a portion of that base into their campaign? You know, you know, I think it's going to be it's going to be really hard to win a Republican primary without being a Trump bootlicker. So I think you're going to see like people like, you know, Steve Schmidt, who ran John McCain's presidential campaign is switch parties. He's a Democrat now. So I think you're going to see people who care about the country, people who care about the Constitution, switch parties. And you've already seen that both at the uh, both with political political elites, but you're also seeing it with with thousands and thousands of rank and file voters switching parties, Republicans becoming Democrats, and then I think you're also going to see you're also going to see an effort to to push a, a third party, uh, like a conservative party or con- some sort of constitution, conservative constitution based based alternative, because you can't win a Republican primary without being not just loyal, but obsequious to to Donald Trump right now. So switching gears a bit here, money clearly plays an enormous role in the execution of political campaigns. And though we've discussed the influence of corporate and PAC money for some time uh, in the political arena, we haven't seen any significant legislation that addresses these influences, restricting political donations or making the process more transparent, specifically as it relates to PAC money. When I have conversations with my spheres of influence out there, I get the impression that there is a trust factor causing a lack of engagement and diluting the messages that attempt to address the true concerns of the American people. When polling constituencies and focus groups on specific initiatives, does the trust factor ever become apparent? Definitely. I mean, trust in in institutions has 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 been and continues to erode. And the the path to meaningful campaign finance reform is going to be really hard to achieve. The the fifty Democratic senators support campaign finance reform. They represent vastly more Americans than the 50 Republican senators, but it will be really hard to get to um, the 60 votes needed to get HR1 or S1 meaningful campaign finance reform passed. We've got to keep trying. It's, It's vital. It's important, but it'll be really hard to do. There's just, there's not a lot of Republican appetite for campaign finance reform. Is there any negotiation on campaign finance reform that would move the needle even just a little, or is this just a non-starter for Republicans? I, I think it's re- it's really hard. There, both both parties use both parties use and benefit from dark money. There's certainly an argument that uh, that um, uh, Democrats have benefited from it, but. When you look at grassroots fundraising, our side is a lot stronger. So I think I think Republicans see that and they're reluctant to give up the 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 dark money that they have a, a lot of access to. 
uh, a lot of access to in their party. Well, maybe part of that is simply that the Republicans just don't put the effort into grassroots fundraising because they can rely on the dark money without having to make that effort to connect individually with their constituency. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're starting to do more of it, but uh, it's certainly a big advantage for us. The grassroots fundraising is much stronger for Democrats than Republicans. But you're right. If they that if they want to get their message out, they should they should do a better job competing for those resources. So moving on to 2022, is there any specific initiatives in the Democratic Party that you would like to see Democrats hold firm on? Or should we just be willing to put everything out there on the table and look, we can negotiate. Let's let's see what we can get done. I I think things like tax reform pandemic relief, economic relief have to be done through the budget reconciliation process, have to be done on a more partisan basis. Other things, look, in 2013, we came really close to an immigration uh, an immigration deal. I think it's worth trying again. I know the odds are, are, are long. This, this isn't easy, but I do think that immigration reform is something that a lot of Americans could get behind. I think there's broad consensus in this country that there should be immigration laws, there should be security with who's coming in and out of the country, um, whether it be the north or south border or whether it be airports, but that there also needs to be meaningful immigration relief. There's undocumented immigrants who are here paying taxes, working hard, playing by the rules, um, and they and their families uh, deserve certainty. And, and relief. So I think there, I think there's a deal to be had. There were certainly a lot of votes in 2013 on the table. So I think there's a chance for meaningful immigration reform. And I think there's a, a chance for criminal justice reform. I think that there's a lot that can be done to reform both policing and the, and the prison system in this country. While, while I think most people in, in both parties, I think, share the goal of protecting and supporting law enforcement, but they also want to make sure that both policing and the prison system is fair, especially to racial minorities. How much influence will the recent insurrection that took place at the Capitol impact the elections coming up in 2022? I, I, it's, it's, it's really hard to tell, but I think it's going to matter a great deal. This was such a dark day in our country's history. And I, I think, you know, you saw it in January with thousands of Americans switching parties in disgust over both the insurrection led by the led and encouraged and incited by the president of the United States, but also the effort to participate. And this goes way beyond Trump. This goes to a lot of elected officials and others in the Republican Party who did and, and many continue to participate in the big lie that the election was stolen. When it wasn't, uh, I, I think it will. I think it will loom large. I don't know for sure, but I think it will loom large. I think this is a a, a big fork in the road where a lot of people are going to leave the Republican Party. A lot of people of goodwill are going to leave the Republican Party. Speaking of switching sides, something you were involved in in this most recent election cycle, you know there are certain states in the United States that you know the political pundits out there all refer to as these are blood red states. And at one time, 
Arizona and Georgia were actually in that uh, list of blood red states. What now you were and, and, and Nevada was pretty bloody, too, I would say. OK, very good point. Very good point. And you were involved in the Nevada race and you were very involved in the Georgia races in electing Democrats to those Senate seats. What blood red state is next for the taking and how long will Democrats have to wait for that opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think I think a, 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 a big first order of business is making sure that, you know, Senator Warnock, Senator Kelly get reelected in those in those states that are now, you know, purple. They've got to run again for their full term in 2022. So I think the step one for for Democrats is make sure we we keep and continue to win, you know, your your Nevada's, your Arizona's, your your Georgia's. Down the road, I do think I do think Texas will change. I mean, I know you all probably see this in, in in Dallas all the time, but Texas is is changing. There's a a a, a growing uh, a growing uh, Hispanic population uh, and a growing African American population and a growing white suburban population that are all either leaning or heavily Democratic, and the Republican counties are are shrinking. So I do think Texas will will change. You know, exactly when is hard to hard to say, but Texas is shifting a lot like California did in the 70s and 80s. For your view for your your listeners who are too young to know this, but you know, California used to be the home of Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Governor Pete Wilson. California used to be a pretty red state, then it became a purple state, and then in the 90s, it moved rapidly to becoming the blue state that it is today. So I think that same transition is underway in Texas. Looking forward, as candidates begin the process of exploring uh, the 2022 cycle, you are someone of uh, expertise that advises folks, whether they should or should not run for office. When someone comes to you and they ask the question, I'm considering running for this seat or that seat, whether it's school board or whether it's president or anything in between, what's the one question you pose to them that they should be able to answer? Yeah. I mean, before people get into how they can win, they've got to answer the question, to the to the voters, but also to themselves. Why? Why do you want to do this? What do you want to do? It's not just enough to to win an election. What do you want to What do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish when you when you get in there? If if the candidate you know has a clear answer to that, I think they'll they'll do well. And the ones that just want to win for the sake of you know being somebody won't be as successful as the people who really want to get in there and do it for a reason. Well, Scott, it's certainly been a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for for being here on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. We wish you much success for your future endeavors. And thank all of you for listening. Please subscribe for notification of future episodes. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer, or it can be downloaded to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. 
I've already bought two copies. You already have two copies. There you go. <laughs> there, that's that. There you go, Scott. I really appreciate that. You have a beautiful day, my friend. <laughs> Thank and you. Many blessings. <laughs>